Well, good night and welcome to this evening's Ask Your Reb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. Uh, for those of you who perhaps have never listened to the show, have just tuned in for the first time, uh, we do a once a month uh, hour discussion on various topics and um, we have Dr. Raymond Pete joining us and uh, using his wealth of expertise to add to what may or may not be known currently. Um, this month's topic uh, is going to be about diagnosis uh, as a double-edged uh, double sword, uh, looking at shamanism and other spiritual healing uh, modalities, uh, but then also looking at what I know Dr. Pete is very interested in is that it's cultural ideas and the change in ideas and how things develop and how language is used sometimes as a tool against us um, and other times as a tool to further our understanding and a lot of uh, scientific research that's done doesn't often make it to the public sphere for quite some time and so we go through all the suffering that we go through being told that liquid oils for example are good for us and they're heart healthy and they lower our cholesterol uh, when actually the exact opposite happens and so 40 or 50 years later uh, we get this admission, uh, but it's too late for a lot of people by that point in time. And it takes a long time for those cultural beliefs to filter out. So uh, this month's subject, I said, is going to be kind of uh, two or threefold, things like diagnosis and how that's sometimes a double-edged sword, uh, environmental enrichment, uh, and uh, a little bit on nootropics. And so I wanted to start the, uh, start the show off uh, by... Um, Dr. Pete's latest newsletter, he does one every month, uh, by the way, folks. Uh, if those of you who have listened or maybe haven't heard the shows before, uh, he does a, usually it's a once month or bi-monthly, actually, I think it's a bi-monthly uh, letter. Um, but I'm pretty sure he's still open to subscriptions uh, to it, although I know uh, there can be a backlog sometimes because I think there's just some, so much going on. <laughs> uh, it's difficult uh, to keep it all maintained sometimes. I know what that's like. Um, so as I read his, his latest newsletter, um, it's quite funny because he put a sentence in there, first deny that harm is done. <laughs> we know the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And uh, we've talked about that and the ethics uh, in medicine of first doing no harm and that a lot of current medicine and medicine really uh, since the 30s or 40s has been doing a lot of harm uh, but unfortunately culturally and uh, mechanistically from advertising and corporate uh, planning uh, we're not told the full story about things and very often we're not told at all so first uh, deny that harm is done now this is going to be a tenet of Dr. Pete's um, discussion here when I ask him to come on in a few minutes um, and that uh, rationale will get borne out for the rest of the show's uh, discussion. So during his uh, newsletter uh, my thoughts went to Native American Indians, South American shamans, Aborigines etc uh, as cultures where ritualistic dream quests typically involving some mind-body disengagement etc uh, disengages the kiss of death uh, given by Western medicine's diagnosis over a patient uh, by the environmental enrichment of the quest and the very nature of both allegory and interpretation of the person's reason for being involved ritualistically in healing as a journey. Especially if the patient has not received a diagnosis prior to the quest to fixate their mind. 
Now, the sentence in Dr. Pete's newsletter, where the organism is working meaningfully, useless structures tend to atrophy as new structures develop. And the quote-unquote meaningful being the environmental enrichment of the pursuit of creativity, altruism, selflessness, etc. This, I believe, can truly bring about what Dr. Pete quotes as unveiling of new possibilities for reorganization and repair, which I feel is akin to cure in the mechanistic sense. Now, perhaps there never was so much death and disease prior to the advent of the diagnosis in Western medicine, as I believe this can be the kiss of death to many founded in such a concrete mechanism. And I don't doubt the substances that Dr. Pete has long supported uh, do affect the physiology for the good of the organism and help resist the disease process. I also understand that antibiotics would have halted the Black Death in the 1300s, and as well as the plague uh, which ravaged Europe, among the many incidences of it worldwide in time. But I'm sure the older arts worked on a more subtle energy, um, underpinning physiology, psychology, and spirituality as a unified system. And in shamanism especially, uh, medicinal plants are central uh, to the quest. And for the critics out there on the forums especially, I'm not advocating neo-Luddism here either. So, uh, let me first introduce Dr. Pete, and then I'll start uh, questioning him. Uh, Dr. Pete, are you there? Yep. Well, thanks so much for taking your time uh, to give here, to uh, share on the show. I know lots of people listen uh, online, and lots of people pick up the audio tracks afterwards uh, in their own time. So, And it's also a very uh, posterity-based uh, altruistic deed that you do when you do this. So thanks so much. Um, if you would, just in case people haven't heard of you before, have heard you for the first time or just once or twice, uh, would you just outline your professional and academic background so people can understand uh, where your training comes from? Um, as a, a new graduate student in the 1950s, uh, I tried several different departments, but uh, um, mostly concentrated on linguistics and, and the psychology of language. Uh, and uh, uh, dropped out of several departments before uh, going back uh, to um, get a Ph.D. after I got my master's degree with a, a thesis on William Blake. Uh, I went back to study uh, biology, uh, intending to uh, investigate how the brain can uh, uh, function in ways that could explain uh, intelligence and language use. Uh, I, I was partly reacting against Noam Chomsky's uh, doctrine, which, uh, when I began uh, thinking about linguistics in the late 1950s, he was just taking over the, the culture of, of language theory, and I considered him as one of the great evils of our culture, the way he was uh, treating language, leaving the brain and intelligence out of the whole thing. It, it became a, a motor program, actually, for uh, following rules laid down in the genes. So what was he, what was he uh, a proponent of, then, in terms of that discussion? Well, his uh, doctrine, he's explicitly said that uh, the uh, behavior that allows us to make language and follow grammatic rules 
must be in the genes, uh, very much the way Conrad Lorenz uh, said that all of our behavior is in the genes. And so uh, to improve the species, we have to kill inferior people. Uh, uh, Chomsky doesn't say that, but uh, he has a very arrogant attitude towards uh, people who, who question his uh, very arbitrary genetic explanation of things. So it's a bit like this kind of neo-Darwinism and Mendelian uh, type situation then? Um, uh, yeah, it's a kind of cultural arrogance that <laughs> uh, w- was based in MIT uh-huh. with all the power of the Pentagon behind it. So um, over the years, uh, when I was trying different uh, departments, I found that he had penetrated every department of universities. Uh, a friend and I did a, a course in the Honors College at the University of Oregon on inter- interdepartmental uh, views of uh, humanity, uh, human nature, and uh, we invited ten different professors. This is to get their perspective, huh? To speak about that, and we picked a uh, professor in each department that students thought was the outstanding uh, professor in that area, and. Uh, each one of them said that his department's contribution to understanding human nature was Noam Chomsky's oh, wow. generative grammar. Oh, wow. Sociology, wow. Uh, uh, folklore, literature, uh, wow. all, all the different departments of the university at that time, 1968, uh, thought Noam Chomsky had... Uh, define the world for them. Oh, my goodness. All right. So um, you've obviously had plenty of experiences um, with research that doesn't make it to the market, with false ideologies, with the truth being there but not being revealed, uh, lies getting around the world faster than truth can get, as shoelaces tied. And, and I know you've mentioned this many times. So uh, within education at that point in time, there was this lie being spread and seeded rapidly through these... Uh, different um, domains that all seem to agree on the same thing. They're all deluded by the same lie. Um, yeah, um, and you can trace it going back to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, being financed by uh, various uh, corporate interests, military interests, uh, all of the uh, powers that were interested in expanding their power were um, promoting research and teaching in these areas that uh, uh, really were presenting a, a very arbitrary and degraded picture of human nature. Yeah. Okay, I just want to let people know that uh, you're listening to Ask Your Web Doctor on KMUD Garberville uh, 91.1 FM. Um, from 7.30 to the end of the show, callers are encouraged to call in with any questions, uh, hopefully related to this month's subject of um, diagnosis and the mind-body connection between disease and recovery, uh, as well as the environmental enrichment aspects that we're going to get into here as being very important to change the structure uh, of cells and promote natural autogenous healing uh, and also uh, get into a little bit again about nootropics and get Dr. Pete's uh, uh, feedback on a nootropic that you probably don't think about as a nootropic. Uh, the number here if you live in the uh, 707 code it's 923 
or if you're on the outside edges here of uh, Northern California, uh, we've got an 800 number for you, which is 1-800-KMUD-RAD. That's 1-800-568-3723. And obviously, hopefully, those guys on the Internet uh, listen to us in different time zones. uh, We'd be happy to hear from you guys, too. Um, So, Dr. Pete. Um, looking at your newsletter, then you mentioned uh, again in the beginning of it the thing about um, heroic medicine <laughs> 200 years ago, and then the generation of this term that we—I think people still refer to it as a positive term—but I think we'll find out here that it's actually quite a negative thing because it doesn't imply real healing at all. Uh, the healing crisis, um, as a defective understanding, seeking to integrate treatment to effect, uh, with the use of mercury and arsenic, for example, being commonplace then, uh, to the con. 50 years ago of hormesis which um, a lot of people may not have heard it's not uh, it's like homeostasis or hermetic but it's hormesis so firstly uh, would you speak about this planting of concepts in our mind to create the false narrative we interpret now uh, well the um, the idea of genes and determining uh, the the nature of, of a species uh, has uh, its theological uh, uh, advocates in the 19th century, and that genetic uh, uh, definition of a fixed, unchanging organism, uh, accidents were the only things that could change the genes, and the genes controlled our being, and so our our being was essentially an accidental construction. Uh, and uh, on top of that understanding, which was well embedded by the 1940s, the uh, industries were uh, starting to produce a reaction to their polluting uh, processes, uh, especially when atomic bombs were being exploded in Nevada and uh, poisoning uh, everyone downwind all the way to New York and around the world. Uh Uh, People were getting concerned about uh, the quality of air and water. And uh, uh, city pollution was killing people with, with smog, uh, factories and cars. And uh, so the, the industry started fighting back, uh, saying that, well, uh, look at history. We see that uh, what if something didn't kill you, it made you stronger. Because <laughs> we do uh, hear that, don't we? Yeah, if you survived the mercury treatment, uh, then you, you were cured and, and a, a strong, uh, healthy organism, supposedly, and then the mercury stayed with you. Right. So this was like this was the original heroic medicine, and then it basically morphed into a, uh, like you mentioned, the um, atomic bomb testing in in the early fifties here, where um, it took quite a while for public outcry to. Uh, get to the gates as it were to start fighting this back so that it didn't carry on happening but um the the industries started funneling huge amounts of money for example one current professor in boston uh, someone figured that he has received more than 40 million (laughs) dollars in research to promote this phony idea of hormesis which is uh, several years about 15 years ago they uh, started giving it the definition that it's a, a biphasic response, meaning that a small amount moves uh, the biology in one direction, a larger amount moves it in the other direction. 
but uh, basically so, the idea was that a little bit of a poison is good for you. And uh, so the, the argument was that the leak from the, the nuclear industry, atomic bombs falling out, etc., all of these were called low-level radiation, mm-hmm. and they uh, used some, some pretty phony uh, evidence and argument. Uh, all of it turned out to be upside-down evidence, but uh, they argued that these so-called low levels of radiation or other pollution were actually causing biological benefit. And that developed into the argument of the the big think tanks financed by these same industries, uh, saying that uh, the government should stop regulating industrial pollution uh, because the regulation is causing damage to the public health because the pollution is so beneficial. <laughs> uh, really. Yeah, unbelievable, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, I, I, it takes a long time, you know, I don't know what uh, you feel, folks, uh, when you hear this, but it's like, it's like many, many things. You know, the wool has been pulled over our eyes, and you know what? It takes a long time before we get it into vision and get it into focus when it's lifted even. So I know you've mentioned lots of things, um, and we try to keep them on the front burner, as it were, for people when they uh, we do the radio shows, and I know we cover, uh, you know, I won't say the same topics because they're not. They're quite different, but they're interrelated. So, But when you, you've got to keep hearing things like, you know, the polyunsaturated oils are very damaging for you. Uh, the industry would tell us that they're great. Uh, the industry told us or is telling us that fluoride is good for you. Um, and obviously there's many places in America here that have banned it and wanted to get it out of the water supply if it's still there. Um, there's many foods that we consume which should not be, even be on the market. Uh, and all the time uh, they want to tell us that it's for our own good and uh, use this kind of uh, hormesis mechanism to justify it and i think that's carried through a lot into medicine hasn't it there's plenty of medical procedures that you would look at as definitely dangerous and not at all beneficial um, and I think the, uh, that, that understanding still supports that. And, and nobody really questions it. That's the worst part of it. it it's such a long-term thing. Uh, the vision that we have is so short-term, and yet what happens does happen over the long term. So especially things like radiation, you know. Most people uh, are just... And it's shrouded in secrecy, obviously, because if everybody was to fully uh, gain the knowledge of what it's doing, we would be absolutely horrified, aghast, and really up in arms about it like never before, and shutting it down completely. But it's just, it's just kept on the uh, on the edge of the edge of the field there, so that we'd never really, never really do too much about it, you know. So it's very important that people hear it time and time again, because it's like anything else. It's the uh, uh, like like the, the the lie that's uh, mentioned uh, over and over again, people start believing it. So people also have to look for the truth and, and hear it more and more and more in order to gradually get the blinkers off and get into focus what it is they're supposed to be looking at. Uh, even though John Goffman was a major government uh, nuclear uh, researcher, uh, he eventually uh, started looking at the facts, and he gathered evidence showing that uh, most cancer uh, and uh, uh, a large part of the heart disease in the United States uh, can be traced to medical x-rays. There you go. <laughs> and uh, 
my brother, who worked in the nuclear industry for most of his life, uh, said that every week they had a seminar uh, teaching them about the benefits of low-level radiation. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and again, people that are listening, that's the other thing, I think, that you, you hit on the head there. X-rays, they're so ubiquitous. I mean, who doesn't who doesn't go to a dentist and the first thing they want to do is X-ray you? Uh, who, who doesn't go to the ER department the first thing they want to do is, uh, well, not always, but X-rays or CT scans, which are a thousand times worse. How often do you see uh, imaging reports that are actually MRIs and not CTs? I mean, like you've mentioned before, a GE are heavily invested in their old technology. They don't want to give it up yet. Um, they need to recoup their costs and they obviously very cheap to run them and so there's still a financial incentive using them whereas the uh, newer technologies are more expensive and there's less incentive to utilize them because there's not such a return so you've got to question everything you come across i'm not saying you need to be a conspiracy theorist about everything but you know what uh, it's healthy a good healthy dose of fear or healthy dose of suspicion is actually very <laughs> very very good a very good help for most people so, uh, once again, the people that are listening here, if you want to call in from 7.30 on, the number here, if you live in the area, is 707-986, sorry, 923, duh, 923-3911, uh, or there's an 800 number, which is 1-800-568-3723. Getting, getting uh, away from the, the concept of the brainwashing and the repeated advertising and, uh, you know, whether it's printed press or TV or radio about how harmless things are... Um, in shamanistic, and I mentioned this at the very outset here, just because you piqued my interest in your newsletter, um, and I've long, I've long held the belief, and I'm not a Luddite, but I've long held the belief that diagnosis can be probably one of the most dangerous things going, and for somebody to hear they've been diagnosed with some chronic disease or even life-threatening disease, you know, it can be coughing now sometimes for some people because there's such a strong mind, body, spirituality uh, connection in us as and I'm definitely aware that we are spiritual beings. I know some people might want to argue with it, but there you go. Um, we're definitely very spiritual beings, and we have a definite journey in this life. You know, I don't believe I don't believe that this is it. Uh, this is the one that matters. But um, it's very much a spiritual journey, and so. In shamanistic and ritualized medicine, then, the healer is a mediator to a spirit realm, then, uh, where a very different set of interpretation exists. So what are your views on, on the mind-body-spirit approach to healing? And do you think um, there are fundamental differences which would yield more beneficial results? Um, I, I think what you're calling the, the shamanistic uh, view, uh, their reality, I, I would call the simple basic reality and the the world that the scientists and government people are, are advocating is a, a world of uh, manipulation and control and uh, uh, enforced uh, agreement uh, where the uh, uh, all you have to do is back away from uh, the the way it's set up by by the uh, academic uh, uh, Orthodoxy, you back away from it, and you see uh, some of the reality that the shamans are are uh, working with. Uh, it, it's a basic uh, participation in the world around you. Uh, all organisms do it, and so sometimes I call it the animal conscious consciousness. But it, it's the the, uh, 
the shaman's therapeutic reality is to get the person back in touch with the complex reality that they're living in in reality and not uh, not being attached to the story that they're they're being uh, brought up with yeah i mean so often uh, it's important to pull people out of this dream state that they're in that the world around them is uh, something that doesn't affect them and um, they don't need to question everything. It's so much like The Matrix. I keep thinking about The Matrix, uh, uh, that movie. When I first saw it, I just thought, you know, that is that is really, that is it. Uh, we're pretty much kept in the dark and um, just spoon-fed lies, you know. And there's a, still a lot of good out there. <clears throat> but like you said, the uh, uh, that, that view is a, a view of non-ordinary reality then which i think is very excuse me very important for practitioners when they're trying to um get into the uh psyche if you like of a sick person that they can make a connection to them that that person really hears because it's so important to i know you've you've probably spoken to thousands and thousands tens of thousands of people um and there are those people who will either just uh not come back because they've heard what they heard or there's some people that really follow through what it is that you're um advocating and i had that experience too with quite a few people who were just so on it that they totally got the results that they knew they could get you know because they'd heard or read the science and they knew that this substance and that substance was implicated and so making that connection with the person is so important and i think Perhaps that is also what you're talking about in a shamanistic um, world view, as well as any uh, uncoupling uh, agents that might be used to deeper penetrate someone's, uh, uh, you know, subconsciousness. Um, you know, lots of people uh, ask me about a cancer diagnosis they've had, mm-hmm. and uh, when I ask them exactly how was the diagnosis made, and and what did it really find, what are the actual observations uh, sometimes uh, they're they're annoyed that I question uh, the simple fact that they have a, right. a terminal cancer underway but uh, very often uh, I would guess uh, almost nine times out of ten it turns out the diagnosis was very exaggerated uh, they're given the impression that uh, invasion uh, is underway, but you look at the the actual pictures and the, try to find out what the pathologist was really saying. And uh, basically, they have uh, slightly abnormal tissue in most cases. And uh, if you press the pathologist to to explain, they'll say, "Well, it's abnormal. It'll undoubtedly turn into cancer, and so right. it's good to get rid of it." Right. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to pick this next uh, question to you, but in the meantime, I think the calls are starting to call it. Sorry, the callers are starting to call in. The lights are flashing. So, uh, if you're in the area, seven zero seven nine two three three nine one one. If you're outside the uh, outside this number area code, there's an eight hundred number you can call, which is one eight hundred five six eight three seven two three. We're very pleased to have Dr. Raymond Pete uh, joining us. So, how about how about the idea you mentioned it earlier about a little bit of something harmful is good for you concerning toxic substances like uh, carbon monoxide, which I think most people do agree is probably toxic because that's the thing that uh, we're looking out for in 
inadequately burnt gas, for example, or, you know, combustion. Uh, but then there's nitric oxide. I hear people all the time using nitric oxide. And then I hear people, well, not even have to say I hear people using it, but lateral. I mean, it's one of those things that I first um, learned, you know, when I was studying herbal medicine here was uh, apricot seeds containing uh, this hydrogen cyanide. And the hydrogen cyanide was uh, useful for you. It was anti-cancer. And so there these kind of substances um, that, you know, supposedly uh, a little bit of it does you good. I mean, what do you, what do you, think, what do you think about those in terms of uh, what I've mentioned? Well, uh, the composition of, of city smog is rich in carbon monoxide and nitric oxide. And, and uh, so it's uh, interesting that these now become uh, medically and biologically desirable. It, it makes uh, the, the fear of smog pretty much go away if you think that uh, there are real uh, defense. They're, they're calling uh, carbon monoxide a, a very powerful anti-inflammatory uh, agent in our bodies. Carbon monoxide? <laughs> yeah, carbon monoxide. <laughs> what? And it just happens to uh, uh, make smog in the city uh, look uh, beneficial rather than, than harmful if it's stuff that we produce it for our own benefit. But when you look at how it's produced in the body, uh, it breaks down the heme group, which is involved in all of our essential oxidative metabolic processes inside the cell, not just in the, in the bloodstream. But it, it does break down the heme of, of blood, but also the heme of respiratory and detoxifying enzymes. And as it breaks it down and releases a molecule of carbon monoxide, it also releases an atom of iron liberating it where it can act randomly as an oxidant. And it, uh, the first step of degrading the uh, heme goes into bilirubin, which is quickly turned into bilirubin. And bilirubin is being touted as a, a very powerful anti-inflammatory antioxidant agent. So both carbon monoxide and uh, bilirubin are said to be antioxidants. And uh, something I've been pointing out for many years is that uh, cancer is extremely endowed with antioxidant processes. Uh, that's why it can resist uh, chemotherapy and radiation so well because of its antioxidants. And what makes uh, a cell healthy and able to uh, uh, endure and function is the whole system of oxidative processes. And if you stop, if you plug up the ability to, to run the oxidative machinery, you go into a reduced state. And that's the antioxidant uh, power of a cancer cell that it pushes reductive processes against uh, in, in the failure of oxidative processes. And uh, that's what you have when you uh, increase your carbon monoxide and bilirubin. And bilirubin has the extra function of exciting nerve cells. And so you get the, the um, process of inhibiting respiratory enzymes by 
both carbon monoxide and bilirubin. At the same time, you're exciting the nerves, exactly the formula for excitotoxic death of brain cells. And that's the the so-called very powerful protective antioxidant. It does have that reductive function of, of in, in certain contexts, being an antioxidant, but uh, those processes are uh, among the very most dangerous things that can happen in cells. Yeah. So, this, like you said, this is the way that cancer can evade um, uh, this kind of treatment. Then, huh? Is that it's it's it has it has um, enzymes that are able to. Um, yeah, it, it turns off the yeah. oxidative process, and that uh, produces. Uh, things like lactic acid, which is a reductant. Because it took me a while to get this concept too, because I think again, it's it's one of those things that's just so in your face. Um, you know, whether it's in dietary supplements or uh, foods that are you know uh, advertised for their ability to be antioxidants. Now, you've mentioned um, before. And I don't know if uh, other people have got this, but it kind of it, it certainly has tripped me up in the past, because I always have um, understood the word and term antioxidant to be beneficial. But you're actually saying that oxidants, uh, so vitamin E and C, um, are actually the beneficial substances, and it's you know, not uh, in a healthy cell. Vitamin C exists in the oxidizing form, okay. and and it stabilizes. Uh, the, the structure of the cell by uh, keeping things from being excessively reduced by, by oxidizing things. And, and vitamin E fits into that picture too. Okay. All right. Uh, we did have a caller, but that caller's uh, he's, he's dropped off. Okay, so we'll, we'll just carry on. But uh, if uh, people want to ask uh, any questions, Dr. Pete, numbers uh, 800-568-3723. Um, so I guess just getting back to um, the doctrine then of uh, hormesis then, which is opposed to the precautionary principle, which we did a show on um, back in January. Um, the, how does this concept work into our consciousness then and, and subjugate our well-being in, in terms of the way it's, um, it's just constantly uh, purported as something that we need to be paying attention to and it's good for us and... Um, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how it is that people can wake up from what it is they're being bombarded with in terms of finding information. I think this is something that you've brought out in the past that um, medical abstracts are no longer reside in libraries, and real data is actually pretty hard to find. And the initial um, documents that were written, or the initial papers that were written, um, can get buried quite easily. And so, actually, what we hear is usually the result of well-funded um, research. Um, so I think you've long held a tenet, perhaps, that it is actually a, 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 a I want to say conspiratorial, but it is actually a fairly uh, fairly blatant um, act in that what's, um, what's actually proposed in many papers that are written does not reflect the true science that there is behind uh, you know, the, 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 the reality of it. Uh, the the um, theory that is is um, repeatedly taught and publicized uh, of what consciousness is 
what the brain is doing uh, fits into this uh, picture that is beneficial to industry. Um, they want to uh, present the brain as having, uh, for example, programs uh, that uh, are genetically determined or uh, trained by um, uh, uh, so-called uh, 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 adaptive uh, learning, uh, uh, the behaviorist uh, approach that you you learn uh, by repetition rather than by insight, and uh, uh, this programmed behavior uh, tends to uh, be digital or um, uh, have very concrete symbolic uh, uh, units of meaning, and the uh, uh, the actual organism deals with patterns, uh, holistic, uh, uh, very rich information field patterns so that in a moment's perception uh, a, a book uh, called uh, uh, I think it was uh, I and Brain by Gregory uh, in the 60s uh, had illustrations uh, showing if, if you um, looked at one image with one eye and the other image with the other eye you could see uh, a three-dimensional image uh, which uh, involved, I, I think it was something like a million different uh, points of information which had to be processed uh, in an integrated way by each eye and put together by the brain. Uh, that kind of input sensory uh, assimilation of millions of points of information every moment uh, is uh, something that is denied by the, um, the, the culture that wants to um, uh, have controllable, uh, uh, educable uh, people who will deal only in uh, symbolic uh, uh, forms of information. So it's, again, it's another example of the reductionist um, view, worldview. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, that... The only way uh, those uh, types of mental calculation uh, can be conceived is um, in, in a simultaneously uh, uh, presented uh, form of consciousness so that a formula exists as uh, something out of time. It works uh, the same way uh, backwards and forward uh, where the... Uh, the actual organism is embedded in time and uh, seeing the implications in the future and reinterpreting the, the past input uh, so that um, logic and math uh, are distractions from the, the, the way the organism is integrating its information. I wonder, what, what, do, you, what do you think it will take um, given where we've come from and where we seem to be going, where, what do you think it's going to take um, for medicine um, to actually change and be beneficial and do no harm? Um, I think it's going to take a, a public uh, recognizing yeah. the extent of the harm that is happening. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, I've seen that happen 
locally uh, where uh, doctors, it only took four or five patients uh, standing up to the doctors to absolutely change them 180 degrees. Yeah, again, because it's such a such a powerful effect that this kind of brainwashing has, and I think the um, I think the uh, personable uh, nature of most people. I've heard it from several doctors here now that their training was so brutal, and they use that word. It was so brutal and put them under so much stress that um, there was a a very corporate feeling of one-upmanship that was displayed by many people in uh, their training as doctors or when they were you know, specialising and going onwards to become surgeons, um, that it was almost a rite of passage that you had to dominate and, uh, I wouldn't say destroy, but do- dominate and control the others, other peers in your field and uh, wouldn't take no for an answer and what you was doing was absolutely right and you weren't to be questioned and there was very much a, uh, uh, a pecking order uh, in medical school that I think caused some people to drop out and others to become really very uh, resistant to change. <clears throat> I, I, I think there are lots of doctors who are uh, open to the opportunity that would be presented if the public would uh, start asking for that mm-hmm. other kind of, of medical approach. Uh, the, the doctors, I think, feel trapped by the, the system just as much as the patients. Yeah. No, I can understand that too because I think uh, financially uh, there's quite a uh, quite a lot of uh, strings being attached, and they they certainly uh, wield their own effect in terms of debt when you've uh, graduated, and then also in terms of becoming successful. So I, I'm not I'm not bashing the doctors. I know there are some very good ones out there who are very altruistic, but I think the uh, the main model and concept of medicine uh, really puts somebody up on a pedestal, and I think that is. I think human beings are very uh, uh, vulnerable to that kind of uh, pressure, that kind of temptation too, I think, which comes with, um, you know, large salaries, private practice, etc. Okay, so I'm getting on getting on to another subject uh, you brought out, and then this brings us back to um, those things like pregnenolone, uh, carbon dioxide, glucose, uh, and you mentioned... Um, warmth, obviously, as a function of temperature, and the, presumably that's all tied in with metabolic rate. But you said that experiments um, done over the last 60 years showing that these substances during embryonic and fetal development can affect the growth of the brain and the brain's way of guiding future development and adaptive ability. Uh, do you think outside of uh, gestational uh, sufficiency of these, that supplementation of the things that I just mentioned it can make up for lack of these things earlier in life, or is there a finite replacement or reorganization event occurring in the brain? Um, yeah, I think every night we're producing uh, masses of stem cells that are going out uh, and uh, attempting to renew uh, worn out or damaged tissues, uh, and that uh, with age, uh, things uh, accumulate uh, polyunsaturated fats and iron and uh, bilirubin, for example, mm-hmm. accumulate, uh, uh, making it too hard for the stem cells to um, do full repair. And so instead of getting repairs, uh, we get uh, fibrosis and gliosis and uh, degeneration of, of the various organs. But uh, with the right support, both in 
the uh, the way the the person is using their brain or their self, and the the way they're uh, getting access to what they need in the environment. Uh, I think at any late stage, uh, those repair cells <clears throat> uh, can be integrated and and taken advantage of. Okay, so this this would support what everyone would probably some of the truth that they hear in this repeated statement is that most of the repair happens at night time, and that's why a good night's sleep is very important. And you do advocate, and I know it's probably it sounds strange to people when I mention it, and they say, "Well, how much?" Uh, you think like nine hours or more of sleep is good for someone, right? You, they, and in the winter, <clears throat> when days are short, I think more hours of sleep are yeah. protective. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, I've, I've seen examples where very, very damaged brains, sometimes lifelong damage, uh, can very quickly show radical restructuring. It's like the brain knows how to uh, rebuild itself when it's given the right opportunity and materials. Yeah. All right, this brings me on to my next question then. Um, you stated that... In experimental situations, then the epi... Okay, there's a feedback going on. I think it turned... That um, in experimental situations, the epigenetic changes produced by stress are reversible. Um, but when the organism stays in the same sort of environment that started the process, reversals become less likely with increasing age, and that polyunsaturated fats amplify this effect by generating carbon monoxide and prostaglandins um, liberating themselves uh, carbon monoxide from the breakdown of heme and prostaglandins which activates heme oxygenase and aromatase production which you've mentioned in the past which produces estrogen from androgens uh, both of which are degenerative and destructive processes so the picture of learned helplessness comes to mind here coupled with lack of environmental enrichment and do you see these as paramount transformations necessary to drive change in the right direction, and can cultivating a positive attitude in the absence of this suffice? Um, uh, yeah, the, I see um, adaptation uh, as constantly uh, choosing between two directions. One, to uh, become more, uh, to know more, and have more uh, ability uh, to move into the future. The other uh, defensive uh, adaptation, uh, simply uh, surviving on the cellular level. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the brain, if you look at it across generations, uh, the, the mother who is under stress, or actually both parents uh, under stress, uh, contribute to the, uh, the outcome of, of the developing baby. But the, the, uh, the brain is... The first thing, it's a very expensive organ, and so stressed parents will tend to have babies with a less functional brain, even a smaller brain. And that, at any point, the brain is willing and eager to repair itself and grow. But if the background has been very... Uh, poor and restricted, uh, then that means that the repair situation has to be more intense. And, uh, so that uh, the uh, the conscious attitude has to be uh, uh, pr 
pretty deliberate to uh, avoid uh, getting in the, the harmful rats of helplessness okay. and and to seek the the uh, particular things that will uh, for example uh, stop that production of prostaglandins uh, reduce the, the the storage of polyunsaturated fats uh, help to eliminate the, the iron which is causing lipid peroxidation and, and uh, activating uh, uh, aromatase and so on uh, those the substances I've talked about so much uh, are active at these various uh, points. Uh, for example, aspirin against uh, the production of prostaglandins and lipid peroxidation, progesterone against the prostaglandins and the aromatase, uh, and uh, uh, the um, elimination of, of carbon monoxide and, and iron. Let, let, me, let me hold you there for a moment because we do have a caller here who's just been on hold for a little while, but let's take this next call. Call away from and what's your question? Yes, hello. Uh, from Trinity County out here in Virginia. Okay, welcome. What's and your... I've been hearing you mention polyunsaturated fats quite a lot. Uh, what about monounsaturated fats? And does this include all these uh, things like uh, olive oil for cooking? Um, yeah, monounsaturated fats are fine. They're they're very a part of our nature. Uh, if we eat nothing but sugar, we'll make monounsaturated fats of our own. And those are the N-9 fats, like in olive oil and butter. Uh, and uh, we produce that ourselves, even if we eat only starches. And then from that N-9 series of fats, we produce our own polyunsaturated fats called the N minus 9 or the omega minus 9 series. And it's the lack of those partly which is uh, the damage done when we eat things like soy oil and safflower seed oil and so on. Uh, they inhibit our ability to, pr to produce our own polyunsaturated fats, which are stable and beneficial. Okay. So you're saying it's better to consume the sugar the sugars that will help us produce that in our bodies as opposed to putting it in our food? Uh, uh, no. Yeah, if, if some people have, have researched uh, finding organisms that will make the uh, uh, equivalent N-9 series polyunsaturated fats, and they find that they are very protective anti-inflammatory uh, agents, uh, they're the things that we would be producing if we weren't poisoned by PUFA. Okay. Um, now, what? Uh, maybe I missed a little bit here, but what is a major difference between monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats? Oh, the, the mono are uh, almost always the N minus nine fats, like uh, oleic acid, and from that. We make, uh, if we aren't interfered with, we make our own omega minus nine series, uh, and the ones that are uh, synthesized in uh, seaweed or uh, soybeans uh, crops, things that grow in a cold uh, climate, can't use the uh, 
more saturated fats. They they produce their own polyunsaturated fats for the sake of, of being fluid in cold weather or in, in the cold ocean. So the cold organism polyunsaturated fat happens to be unstable when you make it uh, as warm as we are. Uh, 98.6 degrees, for example, will cause very quick uh, oxidative breakdown of the fats that are stable at, at uh, almost freezing temperature in fish. Uh, fish oil is very good for fish, although uh, when they gave a, a more saturated fat diet to uh, salmon, I think it was, uh, they had greater endurance than if they had the uh, uh, algae or, or fish oil in their diet. Can I, in, can I interrupt you there for a second? Because we do have one more caller who I think has got a very quick question and has been waiting some time. So thanks for your caller, caller. Next caller, where are you from? What's your question? Hi, I'm from Kansas City. I have a question. I um, saw on PubMed where they did a study about hypothyroidism and heat intolerance and anxiety. <clears throat> and I asked because I have that and I've never heard about it before. And I wondered if Dr had anything to say about that because I do wake up with a low temperature in the morning but I, I'm very sensitive to heat and I become overheated very quickly. Um, have you checked your temperature during the times when you're feeling overheated? Um, yeah, it usually doesn't seem that high. Um, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's never usually more than 99. Um, it, um if you're really hypothyroid and, and have, say, a, a 97-degree temperature when you wake up, um, it's important to keep taking your temperature and pulse rate during the day uh, to see what the effect of food and activity is on both your temperature and pulse rate. Uh, uh, lots of people uh, who uh, have uh, discomfort in the heat uh, have a very high nitric oxide production and that causes vasodilation and a reddening of the skin, but that will lower the, the core temperature. Uh, so to, to understand what's happening uh, metabolically, uh, you should uh, check your temperature before and, and after uh, those experiences of heat intolerance. Okay, well, th I've got to stop both of you there. I'm glad that person got the chance to pick their question, but thanks so much for your time, Dr. Pete, and I've got to give out your information. I appreciate you joining us again. Okay. Okay, well, there, there was one other person here who was um, on, on hold, but not too sure why everybody left it to the last 10 minutes, but I can only imagine that's because they wanted to hear Dr. Pete and didn't want to interrupt him with their questions, but who knows. Um, okay, so Dr. Pete's website, full of um, very, very uh, well-researched information, uh, you're going to find things there that you won't find anywhere else, and a lot of what he's saying is already coming to pass. So um, you do well to go there and find out more about him and what he's been supporting and purporting uh, and researching for the last 40 years. It's www.raypeat.com, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. Um, excellent, excellent website. Uh, lots of articles, fully referenced, and um, 
he does. He, he, he emails lots of people. So I'm not saying he wants any more work to do, but, um, you know, people have, be, people, people have emailed him before in the past and, uh, he's actually been very good and responded. So, um, for those people who were tuned in tonight, thanks for listening. Uh, for those people that got the questions in, uh, thanks for calling. Uh, we'll be back next year, 2018. Um, what can I say? Uh, it's the end of another year, and uh, we'll see. We'll see where the cryptocurrencies go from here on in. Huh? <laughs> anyway, uh, all the best. You know, good night, and uh, see you next year.